Hello and welcome to this episode of the Spotlight Podcast. I'm Christina Kerr, I work at Spotlight, and today we have a very special episode all about collaboration in theatre. Talking to us today, we have playwright Ella Hickson and theatre director Natalie Abrahami. Natalie and Ella have worked together on Anna, the National Theatre, and are working together on the upcoming play Swive at the Globe. Our conversation covers lots of different aspects of the theatre world and creative practice, so take a listen. Ella, Natalie, thank you so much for joining us on the Spotlight Podcast. I want to start by asking you how you first became aware of each other's work. Very good question. A long, long time ago, before the world began. Yeah, I, I'm not sure exactly how I first became aware of you, but I have a very vivid memory of meeting you in a room not dissimilar to the room we're recording this podcast in, but at the gate in that sort of weird... Yes, um, oh, we had a meeting about yeah, oil. Yes, um, in the cupboard, and boys. Yes. Yeah, um, and this sort of weird broom cupboard at the gate that wasn't really an office, but was the only place that you could sort of have a conversation that was one on one. So I, this is sort of feels very familiar. God, that's really funny. I remember those sorts of meetings. Yeah, very. And I, I remember. Um, I'm trying to think the first piece of your work that I saw. I saw lots of shows at the gate. Maybe you did one and I didn't know at that time. Maybe Electra. Did you do Electra? Carrie. Was it Carrie? Awkward on podcast. Uh, <laughs> I, like, I definitely I like saw Happy Days. Um, Happy Days was the first one that I really knew who you were and was like, oh, I really want to work with that person. Um, but yeah, I do remember that feeling of those. The, I remember this huge period of time where I would go and talk to people about boys. Yeah. Did we? I must have not written oil at that stage. Maybe I, we were I think about the first conversation we had was about boys. boys, and then we we were sort of we. I think we knew each other already by oil because I think that, I think we were already. I'm trying to get the timeline right, but I think we were already working on that project that may, may never see the light of day. <laughs> by happy days. Um, I weirdly retold. Yeah. Um, but uh, I do remember those meetings on boys because I remember going to speak. There's this strange thing when you've written a play that no one's put on yet yeah. where you go and have endless generals about a play. And really, as a young writer, you're just like, are you going to do it or are you not going to do it? And <laughs> no one ever really answers that question. Right. So you speak for like an hour or whatever. The, like you guys had been quite clear that you weren't because I think you, at the top of the, which was very useful at the top of the meeting, you're like, this is what we're doing this year. Da, 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 da. So, I was so like, we have an international remit, so yeah, it's going to be so hard it's very difficult. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just I do remember that feeling of going to those meetings because you do so many generals when you're new. Right. And you just go in going, I don't know what I'm meant to achieve. And then you walk out being like, I have no idea if I achieved it. <laughs> it's good to you do achieved it. It's, you did. Yeah, I think it's it always... No, well, it's just always important when you read... Oh, it's the opposite of what I was sort of taught at university, whereas the life, the life of the writer was irrelevant. You shouldn't know anything about their lives or anything. But for me, the thing that matters is the collaboration. So once you've read a play, you want to... Yeah. Meet the person who's written it and understand it. So I think those generals are the first, the first conversation. Step, yeah, yeah, on those. Yeah, and they're always useful looking back. They always are the beginning of something mm. that you don't, you just didn't know what it was the beginning of at the time. Yes. Drawing the dots backwards. So then, how did you actually manage to start working with each other? Given you had all these conversations early on, what was the kind of initiating? So I think the first time that we started working with each other is is that there was a project that. I was slash am still interested in and I went to the National Theatre Studio and said I've got this idea I'm real really excited about it I'd love to find a collaborator I'd like to find a writer to work with mm. on it and I read a lot of they, they made lots of different suggestions and read lots of different work and met lots of people and Ella was the person who met, oh I knew already but kind of felt like this would be a really good connection so we have I think that I can't even bear to think but that's probably like eight years yeah of, it's long a gestation period yeah right um 
And it's one of those projects, it's very big, and I was really excited. Like, Natalie gave me a book, and I really remember reading it and gobbling it up. Um, but at, it's a very academic subject, and it's okay. a very big subject, big academic subject. And at that time, when we started that, I had either just written the first draft or had not, certainly hadn't written the final draft of Oil. Right. And I was stuck in a slightly uh, academic, like, logical um uh, process place mm-hmm. which wasn't really broken until I until the writer and so I had this kind of endless rewriting mm. problem because I was trying to crack argument endlessly without having any real instinct there was no real confidence it was all like brain basically and yeah. there wasn't any sort of instinct or confidence about it so there was a draft that I wrote for that play and I do remember that very that my script meeting on that play was very clear. It was like, this is not a good play. And I was <laughs> like, oh, okay. But I had really thought it was. Yes. So that was really very, like, that was really tough and I needed mm. to... That's not my memory of that. I think it's just, it was more than a play. Yes, it was trying... What do you mean by that? <laughs> it's, it's an amazing play. I think it was, is it fair to say it was about 200 pages? Yeah, it was was epic, and there were lots of different plays within it, each of which was completely compelling, and some were much more naturalistic, and some were kind of very, very um, sort of fractured narratives. And so lots of experimentations of of form, but it sort of was on a journey. Yes, I was... I felt with, yeah, oil and with that play, actually, I was reaching further than my skill set at that time Mm. was capable of meeting... Um, which, yeah, having eyes bigger than your stomach in that way is sort of endlessly devastating on your confidence. It's like a really bad way around. Um, it's it actually something... too bad as a writer. Can't well, be a bad thing all the time. It's good in a way. You really hone ambition yeah. and scale of ambition. Mm. But when your skill set can't meet your imagination, you feel endlessly uh, like you're falling short. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to learn until something gets staged that's the thing it's just so hard isn't it you you, you learn we, we, it is a craft isn't it and we all learn through making and seeing how the yeah. work manifests and there's so many scenes in that draft that I love and can see and staged so viscerally some in boardrooms some on beaches you know like they're yeah. kind of like really epic epic tranches and, and so yeah I think it's still it's kind of hard isn't it to kind of know how to focus that work sometimes yeah and because yeah. it's it's a play about globalization right so like and actually it's really interesting i was just away in the last couple of days and i retold the story of the play to a table of people and they were all completely silent at the end and they were like you i mean you have to write like that <laughs> you, like you know that story inside out you love it like just yeah. you have to write that it's going to happen yeah. like, but it's really it's still there's a sort of the central thread of the story is very mm. filmic like right. the bit of the, it's really interesting the bit of the story i tell every time i tell it it really feels like a film oh, right um which is confusing because the mm. and i also am obsessed with it and i've just done a workshop on it in barcelona whether there is a formal uh representation of globalization mm-hmm. that takes in its sort of largeness and its fracturedness and its multilingualness. Um, and actually, whilst I was away in Barcelona, I had an idea, which I actually haven't shared with Natalie yet. I'm going to have share with her after this. Um, but it would be, it would require, it's to do, the National doing something they've never ever okay. done before, which... Uh, that sounds pretty exciting we'll to me. We'll have to find out whether they would or wouldn't do. <laughs> well, then, what is it? I mean, that kind of neatly brings me to a sort of question I've been wanting to ask you both, which is about the nature of theatre itself. You know, what is it that 
compels you to work in that medium as opposed to film, let's say, or something else? What is it about theatre that you think is still dynamic and interesting? I'm just addicted. Every time I sit down to write a film, I just wish I was writing a play. Don't really? tell that to any of the people I write films. <laughs> I think it's formal experimentation, which is to do with metaphor, but also I think it's to do with the stage I'm at in theatre. People give me... People let me make things now. Yes. And I think the frustration with film and TV uh, of too many people and the processing time being so long and the imperative basically always being commercial at Mm. heart um, means that the formal experimentation, which is where the radicalism lies for me, is just really, really hard to get away. Mm. Um, I I love films and would love and would love to make films but I think what I really enjoy about making theatre is that you are really experiencing it collectively yes. and the collective intelligence of an audience is so much greater than the individual, that what you notice from something when you first read it and then when you start to work on it with your core creative team and your actors and you think you've mined every single aspect of it and then suddenly you show it to 400 people and they're responding to things so differently. I just find that endlessly thrilling and really, really um edifying kind of I learned so much from it so I like that you can then be part of the process of how it is received in a way that feels very very live and is unique to theatre. Yeah absolutely I suppose in film once you've made it you've shot it a certain way it's shown to an audience perhaps as a test but then you either have to reshoot or you edit what you have whereas theatre is made live every day that it's performed, or every iteration in which it's performed. So I can understand that's probably um, a much more compelling, I don't know, maybe a more dynamic experience for you both as creators that you can, can keep responding to audiences as they um, respond to your work. I want to ask you then, you know, in terms of experimentation about Anna, um, why did you want to tell that story, Ella? Oh, I don't know that. Uh, why did I want to tell that story? So the Ringhams came to me with a book called Stasi Land, mm-hmm. uh, which I really loved, which is about a particular moment in um, post-war East Europe, so yes. communist Eastern Europe, uh, Eastern Germany, Eastern Berlin. Um, and I, it was a combination of really loving that period, being very politically interested in communism. Mm-hmm. There's actually a line that fell out of that play which is a line that Natalie really loved. And she once said, that is the best definition of capitalism I've ever heard. I really <laughs> I know, held, what's I the really line? <laughs> I'm not sure I could quote the line. I think what that um, is. But, uh, yeah, so the, I was really interested in that period. I was really interested in communism. And then there was a sort of g- genre element to it for me, which is about feminism, which is when I was watching Rosemary's Baby, or if you watch Psycho, or if you watch all of the female leads in mm-hmm. horror films, genre-wise, uh, their victimhood tends to be um, uh, pretty complete, and it usually yes. ends in death or madness. Mm. And I was really interested in leaning into that genre mm-hmm. and playing with audience expectations. So you go with her in her going mad, and you go with her in her um, in the fact that society turns on her. Yeah. Um, and then there's a sort of unexpected, uh, yeah, just sort of subverting that genre um, in unexpected ways. Uh, and it's more interesting to me to get somebody to follow their prejudice mm. and then to flip it than it is to, yeah, to sort of blatantly state your case at the top. So, yeah. Right. Really interested in that. I've heard you talk about it as a sound experiment as well. I think that was a quote that I've read from you. From yeah, I mean, it was hugely. So, yeah, the, like in terms of the 
technical element yeah, yeah. rather than the story. So how was that for you then, Natalie, in terms of get that sort of story? What was the kind of challenge or the appeal of telling something in that way? Which we, we, maybe we should explain that the whole play is heard through earphones, um, the audience are all given headphones and the actors are behind glass for anyone who didn't get a ticket, um, which they were sold out very quickly. But so that meant obviously that there were com- some limitations in terms of your interaction with certain actors at certain points. And I just wonder how that was that an like, interesting challenge for you, Natalie? Or Yeah, it was a completely fascinating challenge. And it felt um, so we set it in an East Berlin flat in the flat of Hans and Anna. So essentially, there was a sort of fourth wall realism element to it where where one wall would be the wall, the exterior wall, which had windows um, looking out, was a sort of a large glass sheet. So the audience could see in, and that, but the only access that they had to hearing was through was through headphones. And and what it felt like was that we all threw out everything we'd ever learnt before, and we had to sort of learn again because when you are trying to use your ears as a primary source rather than your eyes, you're just constantly learning about how you receive information differently, and so. We would read a scene that Ella had written and it would make complete sense and we'd all understand it. And then you'd start to stage it and you'd go, oh, because you're only given this information in this particular order, you're only hearing it in this particular way, the audience would be behind the curve or ahead of the curve and you wouldn't know. So there was a lot of refactoring and recalibrating. So everybody was, actors were being asked to de-voice or sub-articulate, soft articulate so that things could be heard at the right degree or um, you were asking a lighting designer, John Clark, to make the lights dimmer um, so you could see less and therefore hear more, or you were trying to stage things, you know, often you're trying to stage things that everyone can see them, sort of downstage, centre, um, but here you'd be sort of thinking, oh, let's stage something in a bedroom. Ella would, in fact, write something that would be intentionally off, you know, out of view, so you were kind of hearing something but juxtaposed with what you were seeing, but there was something that we did in previews later on where we realised that we'd done a sort of quite traditional staging on a on a sofa but actually it was much more effective if we flipped the staging so the actors were facing upstage because you then focused in on how you heard it better so we were constantly um learning a new sort of skill set which I found really um thrilling and complex yeah for sure it does sound it and I had heard that you'd written Ella dialogue for all the people even if they weren't heard it's true <laughs> and they learned it and they learned 12 versions of it in yeah. a week but what was what was extraordinary was that the script changed a lot because of how we discovered how the story manifested on an audience through listening rather than than reading it and we did change the script a lot and lots of things were cut and there was lots of sadness and yet lots of things were also reinstated and that was kind of the joy of it that people knew their characters so well and they had learnt all of their text that when we then had to restructure something or reshape something and we'd go well what would they be talking about and then they'd, they'd be able to resonate direct something like oh well, do you remember we used to talk about you know this football match we used to talk about this and so it was um it was all shared knowledge it felt like um it was almost like a family where there were like different Christmases that they'd had and they remembered different <laughs> things that had happened so it was like a shared memory of all the different iterations of the script as we made it so um, our actors were incredibly inventive and long-suffering we did these um we created almost like the equivalent of like the dogma 95 rules that they had for those films we sort of had to create something for our process because it was such an odd thing I'm not even sure I can call it a process but for whatever we were doing the making was so odd because we were sort of in tech from the very beginning the actors right. were in that glass set and we were listening on on headphones and they were being both actors but also makers and so they came up with this lovely phrase that they were socialist sound performance artists <laughs> and they were playing the space like an instrument yeah you did end up feeling that the story both the logic of the plot 
that was seen by the audience, but also the backstories of the characters mm. that related to that plot. There was a sort of shared realism that became really vivid. Mm. Um, and we all felt like we were serving this third... It was The story became its own artist in the way yeah. that like, I would put... I would write overnight mm -hmm. and then I would write to try and either satisfy something artistically that wasn't working or to kind of fit a like plot issue or just to make something dramaturgically stronger and because there was such a level, level of, of ownership in the actors about their characters because they'd been through so much there was this real sense of that can't possibly happen right. in relation to who I am or that is and it was really interesting in that way because as a writer you really felt like you you were serving a story that existed in the world Mm. Rather, and that was quite thrilling in a way. I found it really emboldening, and actually, I wrote much easier and I wrote much quicker That's than ever I'd written before because I didn't feel like I was holding the responsibility of the story. I felt like the story was being held by the room and by the process, and I was just feeding it. It mm. was really that was really interesting about it. I missed that a bit with what I'm currently doing because <laughs> I feel right past wrong. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> A lot of our listeners will be actors or aspiring actors. It's interesting to hear you talk about that process and, and the kind of life and the dynamism between the various roles that you hold. Um, I wonder, though, you know, do you... What is it about the certain actors that you want to work with? What is the quality behind them, Natalie, for you that you are looking for in terms of creating that collaboration? Um, I think that I'm often drawn to things that I don't know how to make. Right. Uh, there are problems that need to be solved or kind of challenges and I feel really excited about that but I'm very conscious that I won't have all the answers and mm. so I'm always looking for people who are quite up for being on that journey mm. and that they are as interested in the making of the piece as in the sort of the particular character that they might be playing and what I love about working with actors is that as a director you know if there can 10 characters in a play like there are in Anna you're thinking about it all the time but you're not carrying individual characters and that's what's fascinating when you then start to kind of get into rehearsals because an actor will say but my character can't do that because of xyz and you're like oh yes of course i hadn't i hadn't thought of that because they are really holding that character mm. journey or they go oh but my character could do this and they can make sort of brilliant offers and so i love that sort of collaboration um, and i'm always keen for people who are yeah i guess offering off yeah really I love, you know, the idea of offers, that we're all making offers and we're working through sketches and we're trying to find our way and that everything is evolving very gradually together, um, but that we're all kind of makers. Yes, so you're all involved in the creation. Ellie, you kind of suggested there that that sort of process of writing and then giving it to the actors and them kind of breathing. It was a very um, naturalistic kind of process altogether with Anna. Um, I wonder, do you generally write with a casting in mind or is it very much... Is that usually how it goes? Increasingly, yeah, just because there are so... I love actors and mm. I love working with them and it is such a treat to be able to write. I remember when I was rewriting, I was on a retreat in January in Vermont <clears throat> and we had fully cast. I think we got our acceptances in during that time, is that right? And I, as the acceptances would come in, I would so gleefully go to my computer and I'd print out their face and I was sticking them on my pinboard as I went because I just love them and because they're part of your that team are hugely dear to you. You know, like all of those, the Anna WhatsApp group or the kind of like, you know, Romola or... Yes. They're huge parts of your life. Like even the boys that were in Boys still now, like Sam Cooke and Danny Corain and Eve and Tom and Alison. And um, yeah, I saw Cam, yeah. So those guys who I worked with ages ago, yeah, they're still incredibly dear to you and because they embody a moment in 
your life. And I think plays are really particular in that way, that you tend to be wrestling not only with a cultural zeitgeist, but you're wrestling with something often a sort of psychological knot in your own life that you're slightly trying to ease or unpick or... Um, and you hope the specificity of your engagement with that uh, speaks to the universality of the problem, just in that you are a human and the world is full of humans. So if it's you or not, it's hopefully the world's not. Um, and the actors are huge in that because they offer their all their ideas and they, um, yeah, they they're a big big part of it. In Wendy and Peter Pan as well, I you know there's huge parts of that which was built for them and by them. Um, Actually, Fiona Button, who was Wendy in the first instance, gave me a ring whilst we were doing it, and I wear it every day. Oh, right wearing it right now. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, it's huge, those people in my life. They really are. And so when I get the opportunity to write for them, mm. I find that really thrilling. Like Michael Gould's been in The Writer Now and in Anna, and I just think he's excellent, and I love working with him. Um, and I have a real set. It's also because you have a real sense of what they're capable of. Mm-hmm. So then the meeting of that with what you're capable of writing feels really but I did it in the very first the very first thing I wrote eight mm-hmm. I wrote that uh I interviewed each of those so they were eight the best eight actors I thought at university yeah and I had a cup of tea with all of them um for an hour or so and talked to them and then I would write these monologues around either what we talked about or often in um relief to their characters mm-hmm. so my friend Ishbel who's one of my very very oldest and dearest friends still um she and I talked about Christianity a lot um, and then I went away and wrote Millie the prostitute for her <laughs> so there's kind of a you can write towards or you can write against but there's a kind of um, an engagement with the human also lovely actors you've never met before bringing something to a part that you never imagined it also is hugely creative so yeah for sure I'm, I'm curious then you know you're collaborating again you've got another project together which is starting soon. I think people can already book tickets, actually, um, for Swive. I want to ask you then about that, not to suggest, obviously, that, you know, you you obviously do enjoy working together. I can see that. But I'm kind of curious, did you feel like there was sort of not unfinished business, but something more you wanted to kind of creatively get from each other in doing I'll another project? Globalisation, I think Natalie would quite like to creatively get from me. Yes, <laughs> well, other than that one, yeah. <laughs> this is my room. This is my kind of soft No, I'm cell. in a locked padded yeah, if room. if I'm in a room with you for long <laughs> enough, will the play come out? Um, it will. Uh, yes, I think, for me, it's really interesting. Like, I, I really struggle with the solitude of writing. Um, it has a left with my own brain in my own company for too long um, I'm definitely not the best version of myself um, and therefore the work suffers as well mm-hmm. uh, I need to be in sort of communal environments it's kind of like a very particular alchemy of aloneness and togetherness that creates the really good work um, and it's quite hard to strike in life I the rehearsal room therefore is an incredibly important place to me um, and being in a situation where I write a play mm-hmm. and I hand it in and someone says yeah sure well, you can turn up is <laughs> devastating to me because it's it's not that I need necessarily to be hugely instrumental mm. but I need the community like I need the people um, I'm sort of suited to the circus in a way. Um, and Natalie and I, I love working with Natalie in the room because she runs a really excellent room, which is like a very clever combination of it looks like everyone's allowed to do what they want all the time. Mm. Um, but secret, <laughs> so secretly. <laughs> um, no, but it's really good. There's a really, really, really brilliant combination of freedom um, and security. 
and that is the axis on which I struggle in my life and Natalie seems to facilitate it perfectly so it works for me it was I remember early on in Anna Rehouse's um saying to you know I think it's probably if you have got other things that you need to do you know probably you could just be with us in the mornings and then we'll we'll like muddle through in the afternoons and that became clear so quickly that was not possible and that you were needed in rehearsals <laughs> all the time and we were just making it together, together all, yeah. all of us and that felt really exciting and so I guess not that there's unfinished business but it felt really thrilling to think that, that might be something we could do together on on Swive as well and that sort of dynamic of both of us being in the room and making it together felt really and exciting like, with, a, yeah. with a company and it would be a, a small company of actors so it feels like that can be um, really um, exciting as a sort of chamber creation. Yeah, it's like a different vibe. And also it's the thing that the sort of thing that I've been thinking about about the globalisation play, like the idea that you can make something in teams that feel... It's really funny, it's what sort of was called for in the writer, weirdly, mm-hmm. and then I've managed to sort of slightly facilitate in practical form. Um yeah, the sort of idea for the form that the globalisation play might take is a very communal effort. And um, the creatives are were empowered in the writer in that middle section in the text. It says that the whole creative team should sort of make it. And that felt like that on Anna as well, that everybody had a... Each member of the creative team had, was acknowledged as an active element of the making process. Mm. And I find that really thrilling. Um I want to work like that. I want to work in teams where everybody is operating autonomously, but to the creative, collective good of the project. It's interesting to me, you know, you've touched upon, Elaine, what you've just said there. You know, it seems like the the commune and the communal is something that you are thinking about in general, not just in terms of your writing, but also how you create. Um, And capitalism is kind of a concern there as well in a few Mm -hmm. of the things that you've written. Um, I had read that you characterised the writer as being about the inescapability of capitalism, whereas a lot of um, the kind of dialogue around the play was around, um, I guess, feminist kinds of discussions. I wondered if I could read you something that you were quoted saying. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> and you could tell me maybe what you think um, of this topic now, but to do with the feminism thing. Um, I had read that you'd said that every time Hamlet goes on, people don't talk about it as a treatise on masculinity, but if a woman happens to write a play with a woman in it, it gets called feminist. Yes, I'd stand by that, I think. What is it about (laughs) something being called feminist that you think is kind of a, not a fraught title, but um, what was the concern there? Um, It's very fraught, this whole subject, isn't it? Because um, obviously... Feminism has been and is doing great things, but it is, yeah, it's where you sit on that whole axis, and I don't really know where I sit on this particularly because it changes, I suppose, but whether to name the minority is to raise its value or whether to name the minority is to damn it to its exclusion. Mm. Um, And that's sort of, I guess, what I was talking about, that in a sense you will feel like equality has been reached when... um, Actually, we didn't get it on Anna, interestingly. Female lead, female title. And no one said it was about feminism. Um, but it's quite a capitalist form, the thriller. And so, and also there's a big technological experiment at the heart of it. Yeah, so it's sort of a different thing. Um, but you do, I, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's what you do when you've got a big old long-running historical hegemonic norm mm-hmm. is that that just doesn't get called out. Yeah. As male, you only get named if you're a minority. Yes. Um, 
And so the naming of work as feminist feels... Um, it's just very difficult, this whole thing, with women and celebrating it and naming it and making it a movement. I remember so clearly when I first started, we were young British female writers. That's what we were. And it was me and Lisa Kirkwood, Lisa Preble, Laura yes. Wade, Bola, Penny Skinner. Like, there's a gang of us. They could not stop taking photos. And you thought, oh, aren't they doing, aren't we doing a great thing? Isn't this a great movement? Da, 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 da. And then suddenly, as we're not like a bunch of 19-year-olds, like Anya and, you know, they stop taking the photos. Mm. And you go, was that a step forward for mankind? Or was mm. that them getting, like, 10, nine, 10 women in their 20s in a room and getting them to lean on things in slightly sexy ways? Mm. Uh, and that was going on the front of the magazine. So you... <laughs> It's hard, that whole thing. I don't really know. You want to raise the profile of something, but the means by which you raise profile, especially in today's culture, uh, is often through a media lens or through a particularly commercial lens. And the media and commercialism, um, certainly visual media, is heavily weighted towards an, a sense of objectification which tends to be patriarchal in its view. So you're kind of... You are forever caught inside the very clever paradoxes that capitalism creates for you um yeah i certainly don't think feminism is a bad word i certainly no. wouldn't call myself a feminist but i do think it's it can also be used to contain and belittle um in a way that isn't particularly helpful mm. yeah well i'm curious to know in terms of swive then that's kind of also a sex and power kind of story I suppose just to put it in a really simplistic really way myself really um, <laughs> but I mean do you think of it as a particularly well, what do you think the play says Natalie from your point of view what is what is it <laughs> about to you? Are we talking about Anna or are we talking about Swive? Swive. We're talking about Swive. Um, well I was just thinking as you were talking about um, aesthetics and beauty and power I think that is something that is being explored in Swive and the sort of the sense of image making that Elizabeth had learnt from her father, who was sort of starting a Tudor legacy, and he knew the importance of those paintings and how then she portrayed herself and her sense of how she created her status as this virgin queen and all of those things that allowed her to rule for 45 years, which was a phenomenal amount of time to create stability, but also the most significant female monarch of that, of that time, I think is something that we are exploring because so often, often women are focused on at earlier stages than their in their careers or in their trajectories and actually she she ruled in, into her 70s so that's something that I think we really want to shed light on mm. but the fact that we're dealing with beauty and sex and age and she happens to be a woman again I found this with oil actually as well is that no doubt uh, it will get given a feminist reading or it will get called feminist and Elizabeth much like in oil is ma Elizabeth was a massive old patriarch <laughs> like she really like she really loved men and she ran a very hierarchical system and she believed that women were less than men and she really believed the only way that she was any more than men is that she wasn't a woman at all but she was a type of god mm. like there really really wasn't i mean she was terrible to her ladies in waiting she was awful to her sisters she betrayed her stepmother by sleeping with her husband i mean there was not like yeah. The fact that everybody will come out and talk about the fact it's a feminist reworking. I mean, it's really like Elizabeth absolutely is not a feminist mm. um, in that sense. So it's that's what I'm saying about it. Kind of it's often a slightly uninterrogated term. So they mm -hmm. take female lead and issues of sex and they go, oh, feminist. And it's like it's really yeah, for oil particularly it was a very, very capitalist story. And she was a very, very capitalist woman. I mean, she was Thatcherite almost, May in oil. Mm. And yet 
repeatedly it got called a feminist play and it was just like it just feels lazy actually rather than anything else um so yeah i think that's probably my point <laughs> fair enough i'm gonna change track now for a second and just kind of talk to the fact that a lot of the people listening to this will be yeah aspiring actors who maybe want to write their own work or direct their own work um and will particularly look into the theatre world to do that. I wonder if you each had any particular advice or what would you tell someone in that position who's entering theatre as a business in terms of navigating, creating your own stories for the first time? Um, I would say, there seems to be a real trend for this recently and I can understand it because I think what you're trying to do is wrestle your agency mm-hmm. um, back from a... Um, industry that can be very frustrating and that can really make you feel like you don't have any agency and as I self-produced a lot of my early work and so I really can understand the benefit of doing that but it really wasn't until I think the writer is like my 10th or 11th play that I would have written anything but that that felt as first person I suppose Mm. as that um and I do think that a lot of the work I get sent from young writers, it feels very first person and very confessional and they're also acting in it and they've also written it. And, and there is a, I think there is a, I'm not sure that being in the work that you write ostensibly about yourself, that you are producing potentially yourself and directing. I have questions about it in terms of uh, craft Mm. And I have questions about it in terms of like just interest level. But right. I do also think we're in a particular time where people don't really feel they're allowed to write about anything but themselves. There's a sort of identity politics issue there which makes people write more and more and more only about themselves from their own point of view because there's a lack of permission to do anything else. Um, but I also question, and again, this is not without this is not with blame or anything else because I do think the identity politics situation is uh, f- maybe rightly forcing this it's very good for you to look at the world through other people's eyes. Mm. Um, And I think theatre particularly is about a journey of... Humility is the wrong word, but I think a journey of understanding that you you are given an opportunity to emotionally experience life through somebody that is different to you. Mm. And the act of imagination as a writer, of writing in the voice of somebody that is different to you... I think is part of the philosophical pursuit of theatre. Yeah, so when people sort of, young people are writing and producing and acting and and the work is confessional as well, I worry that they're missing like a particular, one of the very particular bits of of a theatrical skill set that I think is really crucial. Mm. I guess thinking a bit about auditions and reading new plays or plays and and then going into me, a writer and director would be just... um, I think that there's so much, there's such a trend. I, I notice, I think, that there's such a trend for self-taping at the moment. That yes. People often feel that they have to learn the script in advance. And I think, actually, for a theatre meeting, often the director and the casting director and the writer, if they're in that room, would much prefer that that time that you've spent learning those particular scenes or sides was spent thinking about the play and reading it in detail and really thinking about the character because I think we assume that over the length of the rehearsal period those lines will get learned and indeed those lines will probably change as well so you don't want to sort of put them in that early but to really spend the time thinking deeply about the character is I think more useful and will will allow you to be more 
movable and fleet of foot and shift um, in that meeting because I think, I know we often, whether we call them meeting or auditions, the original, the meaning of the word audition comes from to listen. And I think it is a listening exercise on both sides of really, um, you know, the director tuning into that actor and listening to what they think and what they might offer and how they respond to feedback and direction, but also for that for that actor to listen to the director and think, do we work well together? Can we collaborate? Can I take on board their notes and metabolise them and sort of do those shifts? And I think that sometimes those meetings can feel quite intimidating in some in some way and you've got so much to prove in such a little time. But I think if one can just think about it, that actually it's an opportunity to meet someone and to listen to them and to listen to each other. And it might not work out for that particular um, project, but, but your lives are long and you'll meet again. It's sort of takes the pressure off because actually people just want to see you do good. That's the best hope that you can have for any audition is that you see people in their best light, that they, you know, that an actor can perform it as well as they did in their own bathroom or wherever they re they rehearsed it. So I think that idea of, of listening and really tuning into each other is, is a helpful touchstone. For sure. I won't take too much more of your time, so <laughs> just a few more questions. One is what theatre out there at the moment is most exciting to you that you've seen? or engaged with and what would you like to tell next as a story? I'm quite um I'm quite eclectic in my taste. So I don't think there's a particular theatre that I go that I go <laughs> to religiously. I sort of I'm, I'm a kind of magpie and go to lots of different um, lots of different places and I also, you know, I think I'm probably in the minority but I also really enjoy NT Live and I will happily go to a live screening and see it from every room in the stores. I think just I love the when you get those post-show and pre-show talks and you get to hear the actors or the designers and the creatives have those insights so I, I like kind of um I will receive my information or kind of my <laughs> theatre everywhere but um I guess I'm always interested I don't often know what the next story I want to tell is until I've completed this one so it probably will right. be something in it, it feels interesting to me that we just did a sound experiment and now we're sort of working in a space where lighting is really critical so it's often like a pendulum where you go from one thing to to another so I'm working with Ella on Swive at the moment, and the next thing that I'm doing is is an opera at the at the Opera House, the Turn of the Screws. So that's kind of a completely different form. Totally different um, again, yeah. yeah. So, so I kind of enjoy that that variety. Um, again, I'm sort of very eclectic. I see lots. I just love it. Like if I'm having a very bad day, going to the theatre by myself is uh, my medicine. I just even if it's bad, actually, I quite like. I just love it. It's just like a religion, and I, you know, yeah. As I say, if I'm feeling sad, I read books on playwriting a weird geek so that's fine <laughs> um and then um what was the second part of the question what would you like to tell next as a story oh i mean i'd love to tell um swive next that would be fun uh because it doesn't exist yet but it will um and yeah i'm really i'm chewing on i know i always know like i know the next all i'm looking for is for the world to give me like a clear year to write them but if i have a clear year i immediately panic and fall into some horrible black hole so uh, it's kind of a constant game of like i know what the next four are they're really really clear to me mm -hmm. um and if somebody could build like a magic commune that i could live in year round then i'd get them all written there we go. there's a brief <laughs> <laughs> yeah anyone wants to do that Perfect. Thank you so much, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Spotlight Podcast. If you've got questions for us or if you'd like us to talk about a particular topic in an upcoming podcast, send us an email at questions at spotlight.com. That's all for now from the home of casting. <laughs> <laughs>